Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, two teenagers in Iowa are accused of doing the unthinkable to a teacher, all because of a bad grade, a grade which I'm sure they deserved. The teen boys have been charged with first-degree murder after allegedly bludgeoning their Spanish teacher to death and then disposing of her body. The boys may be 16 at the time of this murder, but they will be tried as adults. Plus, we've got some developments in the Delphi murder case of Libby and Abby in Indiana, so we'll have an update a little later in this episode. But first... When a New York City cop kills his eight-year-old son who has autism because he soiled himself, mercy is hard to come by. In fact, it is a cold day in hell, literally, because that man left his little boy to freeze to death in an unheated garage when it was freezing. It was 19 degrees out. Many of you know this case because we have been covering it here for two years, and today we can report that a jury has found the father guilty of murder. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 9th of 2022. Our guest is Allison Treasel, a Los Angeles-based criminal defense attorney, a legal expert who you can see everywhere on television. She's the legal expert for Access Hollywood for the LA TV station KTLA, a tremendous friend of mine and the show. Welcome, Allison. Thank you, Anna, for having me. I always love being on your show. We've got some cases that are very disturbing. And the first one, Allison, I can tell you, even as I was going through the parts of this in preparation for the podcast, I was getting so angry and I was getting so hurt and so mad because I often feel this doesn't have to happen. Children should never be killed by their parents. And it kills me to know that the system was involved. The Suffolk County system was involved. 
Department of Child Services, teachers complained to them. The mother complained, and yet this still happened. The baby boy died. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't just um, that, that teachers and a parent complained. Teachers and the mother were actively involved in trying to stop this horrific abuse. The month before, there were three uh, reports to DCFS. And I know we're going to get into the horrific details, but I think when I read this, it hurt my heart. Um, you know, I, I'm the mom of, I'm the mother of three boys. Um, the callousness, the utter disregard for human life. The fact that he's a cop, all of the, yeah, the fact that he is a cop, and I do believe, Anna, that that played a major role in how he was able to avoid yep. um, detection and why they repeatedly returned these boys back to their father. Um, and and that's, a, that's a major concern and a flaw in our system, frankly. Oh. It's it's despicable. He got preferential treatment without question through the entire system. And, you know, the mother who had, you know, she'd gone public almost two years before the death of Thomas on Twitter. She would start posting things. You know, not no, no one would listen to her. They all thought she was the crazy one because he, the father, the New York City cop, kept telling the family court judge, oh, she's mentally unstable. Oh, she's the one who's ill. She's the one who's the problem. And who do they believe? The cop. Wait, and she was a correctional officer, by the way. And not only was she a correctional officer, when she reported, there was an instance where she reported the abuse. They end up charging her. They end up actually charging her. Thankfully, those were dismissed. But, you know, when when we talk about the, the facts of this case and the horrific nature of this case, we have to have a very good understanding of how broken this system was in this case and how this was preventable. And you know what the mom is doing and I commend her? She is going after every single judge that ruled against her. She is not only publicly shaming them and outing them so everyone knows who they are, but she's suing the county. She, you know, she, and I do not blame her. She's anyone ever had a cause in this country to file suit it is this woman. She told them, she actually said, he is going to kill my child. And then he did. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the fact that she publicly posted this information and the emails from the teachers clearly stipulating what was going on with Thomas. Here's a little boy, he's eight years old. He lost 11 pounds in nine months. Children are supposed to gain weight, not lose it. The, the, the children would go to school hungry and the teachers and the staff would get extra food for them. They were looking for food in the trash bins. When her counselor in the, and I think he was a lawyer, in her child custody, very contentious child custody dispute, when she lost custody of the children, he actually was so upset over it and so offended by the ruling that he wrote a note to the judge. He actually wrote a letter to the judge complaining uh, about how unfair and how damaging this result would be. Um, that as a lawyer, I can tell you, we don't do things like that. We don't, I mean, that's how outraged and 
uh, and concerned he was. The judge never responded. The court staff never responded. And literally silence, silence. And silence is what killed this boy. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So let's get into the details of this case, what the jury examined and what will happen from here. So this is a case out of Long Island, as we've said. Eight-year-old Thomas Valva died of hypothermia in a very vicious manner. Investigators say his father, who was a New York City officer at the time, tortured his special needs child. 43-year-old Michael Valva kept eight-year-old Thomas and his 10-year-old brother Anthony, who also has autism, in the garage without heat, without food, without blankets, without pillows, nothing. For 16 hours, this is before his death, and no access to a bathroom. So when Thomas couldn't hold it anymore and he soiled himself, His father lost it. On the morning of January 17th of 2020, his father, and now this is the amazing thing, Allison, that this is corroborated by multiple security cameras inside the Valva home and the neighbors. So, I mean, we're not just saying, oh, he says, she says. You can see it and you can hear it for yourself. By the way, you don't even need to know No wonder the jury only deliberated for a few hours because just hearing what he said in those recordings is so repulsive, so upsetting. Um, It's um, it's probably it's one of the worst cases of child abuse I've ever seen. Oh, my God. I don't know how that boy was alive. So he grabs this boy takes him outside in the backyard. Remember, it's 19 degrees out. He rips his clothes off and he opens up the garden hose and he hoses him down with ice cold water. While he's doing this, he's yelling at him. He's yelling at him. Oh, you're cold? Boo effing who? This is what the father says to this child. Well, Thomas, who is exhausted, suffering, From the effects of hypothermia, obviously undernourished, he collapses, he hits his head on the concrete, and he passes out. And what does this guy do? He yells at him. He yells at it. He yells at this little boy. (sighs) I I know. I mean, Anna, look, there there are no words. Um, After he yells at him to wake up, wake up. At some point later, before he calls 911, he tries to suffocate. He makes it as though this child has suffocated to cover his own disgusting acts before he called 911. Because now he needs this child to be dead. He can't have a witness. Correct. And he puts Thomas in a warm bath. Oh, wow. What a dad. He waits an hour to call 911. Oh. And the lies he tells 911. We're going to play that. We're going to play that for you in just a bit because we want to get into the details of this case. So when you hear that 911 call and the lies and how he pulls rank and says, I'm a police officer at the very top of the 911 call, you all will truly have the context of what he did at that time. I am just disgusted. I'm, I'm just so disgusted. So obviously... Oh, and it's interesting. During the trial, Allison, you know, even though the jury only deliberated for a few hours, one of the things that they did a callback on that they asked for more, they wanted to hear the 911 tape again. 
They wanted to hear it again because the issue on what they would find him guilty of if they were going to find him guilty had a lot to do with if he showed any, what is it? Is it, it's like a disregard for human life? So uh, obviously. Right. I mean, you know, it is depraved indifference to human life. Um, and it's, and it was not too soon after they heard that tape that they convicted him. Um, but what I think, I mean, I, I, they watched this jury watched this guy through the entire trial. And one of the jurors remarked, it was his lack of remorse. Even when he sat there during closing arguments, when there was a picture of his son, he wouldn't even look at the picture of his son. Um, it was though it was not just his acts, but if you're going to argue that he didn't intend to kill him and that, yes, he, he was neglectful and abusive, but he had no intent to kill. Well, don't you think that parent would be crying hysterically saying, what have I done? What have I done? How could I do this to my child at the trial? Something, something. Right. No. My baby boy. No, no, there was absolutely none of it. You know, obviously Thomas ultimately died. Um, his body temperature was 76 degrees. He had no chance. He had no chance. So the father, Michael, is arrested. And so is his live-in fiance, Angela Polina. Now, she is not Thomas's mother, but police say she is complicit in the abuse and she has been charged. Her trial is next. He was tried first. Um, the, the mother of the children wanted them tried together at the same time. She was also furious that the trial was not video streamed and didn't have access to cameras. I don't blame her. I think the so community York, has a right to see what's going on in this case. Right. New York, um, unfortunately, for those of us who believe that uh, courtrooms should be open to the public so the public can see and hear how our just our justice system works. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. New York is one of those states, unlike Arizona, unlike Florida, where most judges close their courtrooms um, to media. Um, now, I do disagree a little bit mm -hmm. with the idea that these two should have been tried together. And the reason I say that is because um, in a true justice system, you want someone convicted of the acts for which they commit. Mm. And there would have been undoubtedly true bias, true real bias. If Paulina is sitting next to not, not that she, should be treated any better. Mm -hmm. Not that she did, wasn't complicit, and I'd say more than complicit, I would say um, that she participated. Um, there is a text exchange between them where she says they soiled their bed again, he soiled his bed. And he says, well, I, you know, I'm gonna need to beat him. So, I mean, she was involved, but I do believe that in a case like this, um, she should get her own trial. She should get her own jury. A jury should hear the evidence against her. I think it is as horrific as the evidence against him. Um, she obviously is not guilty as we speak. Um, but I do believe that 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 is the, the correct ruling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? I agree with you, Allison. I'm sharing with everyone that the mother didn't like that. And oh, right. And, and I'm her. I wouldn't either. Yes, exactly. And I think um, after all this this mother needs to be heard. 
her no. she needs to be heard through the process and the system here because she was not listened to in the beginning so we really need to pay attention to her words right now i think that that's so important L- let's talk a little bit about thomas's parents so you can have an idea of what was going on and we're going to get back to that day that he died so michael valva and his ex-wife justina zabuco valva divorced in 2015 they had three children Anthony, who was 10, Thomas, who was eight, and Andrew, who was six. The divorce was contentious, each one of them accusing the other of being neglectful and abusive. Um, Allison, you've given us some background already on, on how contentious this was and how unfair it was. So two years after the divorce, it would have been now September 2017, Michael Valva is granted full custody of the children. And, and Justina, the mother, is still claiming this is not fair and this is going to end badly. She, at the time, and for years up until right before that this little boy was killed, she continued to present evidence. So here's an interview that the mother did with News 12 Long Island. And this is the mother, Justina. Every time I kept telling the judges, if you're not going to remove the children, they're going to die under his care and custody. There were evidence, hard evidence. She's consistently, consistently said that she had proof. She made it available to anyone who would listen, especially when the system wouldn't. And I think we also have to talk about the teachers because the teachers testified in this trial. These are special ed teachers. These are teachers who, um, who really dedicate their life to caring for children with autism. And they're, um, they unfortunately see cases of, of, you know, abuse from parents and foster parents and grandparents. 12, there was over a dozen calls made to DCFS reporting anything from, he showed up with bruising. There were marks all over him. He had a black eye. Um, he had soiled himself. These kids have not eaten. They're malnourished. Um, these are not people who were intermeddlers. These are not people who are tries, trying to cause a problem. These are people who saw something and are mandatory reporters. The state relies on them to act. They did act, and then they were dismissed. These teachers were dismissed routinely call after call after call. There was something like three calls in December, right before this happened. And the calls were so detailed and it was just, um, um, the, you know, the, the caller calls, um, this, the boys are eating food out of the garbage. They're hungry. They're begging for food. Their, their clothing is soaked in urine. Um, if you're a social worker and you get a call like this and then you say, oh, and they closed the case. She begged them not to close the case and they closed it and they said it's unfounded. And not only did they say it was unfounded, they said, well, we did speak to them. We spoke to them and they were told that they'd be under watch for a year, that this police officer would be under watch for a year and that he could not treat his children badly. Are you kidding me? And I wanna say one thing about him being a police officer because this um, this is how this, in my mind, so much of this happened. Um, when they interviewed neighbors, when they interviewed people who had contact with, with him and his wife 
when they were still married and the police were called all the time, um, all the time to their home and she would report abuse and, and he would say nothing happened. He said, he's a police officer. He's a police officer. Everyone's scared. Who's going to not believe a police officer? I am just so disgusted by this. I am so disgusted by this. And then flip that around. A police officer who swears to protect and instead inflicts this on his special needs boys. And and Allison, explain this part of, of this lunacy. If you hate the boys, because he clearly hated them the way he treated them, he didn't want the stress of special needs boys. Why? Why did he want full custody? Oh, I have the answer. I have the answer. Anna, he didn't want to pay child support. If he gave them to his ex-wife, and so they weren't living with him, he'd have to pay child support. And he didn't want to do that. So instead, he kept them there and just treated them like trash and kept them in the garage. Um, and they were they were his human punching board. I mean, it's so it's so outright. And, you know, the live in fiance had daughters of her. She has daughters and the daughters lived in the house. And she didn't like during her trial, I have no doubt that it will be introduced that she didn't like the boys. She didn't like that they were autistic. And so his defense, by the way, during trial was that she was controlling him and that she would tell him to do it. I mean, let's be real. Oh, please grow a pair. Come on now. You know, let's be real here, sir. You hid behind that badge saying I'm a police. No. No one fooled you into anything. And these are your children. These are your children. Please don't tell me that any woman, any person, if you truly cared about these children, would force you into these horrific acts. That's absurd. It is absurd. It's it's insulting. It's absolutely insulting. And, you know, it was this blended family. There were six children, as you said, in this house. Her three girls lived in the house. And remember that Thomas had an older brother and a younger brother. Apparently, the little one was allowed to stay in the house. So the two children who were special needs, they go in the garage with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. And here's the other thing. You know, you know, I love I love all animals. Um, I, I, I am always worried about the most vulnerable in our society. And, and remember how I said that the cameras, the family's own cameras, nest camera system, and those of the neighbors, the security picked up a lot. So he and she allegedly, cause she hasn't been tried yet, tried to delete everything, right? Tried to delete all the evidence of what the cameras picked up, but there was one camera in the warm pantry where the dog slept. And they forgot about that surveillance camera for the dog. And you know how much I love dogs. But the dog's camera, because we had to keep the dog warm, of course. No. That, is the, that is the camera that did him in. Um, I have commentated so much on what I have found to be the most horrific case in the world, and that's the Turpin children. Yep. Um, I, I put this man in that category mm-hmm. um, as one of the most vile people that could ever be. 
Oh, but so he, disgusting. Children. And, and I say that, you know, normally you say allegedly, allegedly he was convicted. He was. Convicted. Oh, he was convicted. I just because of, you know, his former fiance, he's been convicted. The videotapes, the, the security cameras, everything, you know, has been seen. It happened. It's yeah. real. Now, remember how I said at the very beginning that Justina, the mother, for two years prior, tried to, you know, was releasing things publicly on her Twitter account. I want to play a clip, a video clip that she posted in 2018. So two years, two years before. And in this clip, it's the handoff in a, like a parking lot or something. So um, the father has the three boys and then the mother's waiting. And so for those of you who are listening and can't see it, one child goes running to the mom. The other two are being held by the father, by the hand. And the littlest one is trying to break free because he wants to run to his mother. And he starts punching his father in the knee because that's how tall he is. He's literally that little. Punching his dad in the knee to let him go. And you can hear her screaming, let the children go. Let's play the clip. Let him go! Hi, Andrew! Let them go! They can come to me! Let him go! Let him go! He wants to come here, Andrew! Let him go! What are you doing to them? Every single come here, baby! I got you! I got you! I got you! You know, Allison, for me, this clip, I realized those handoffs during contentious custody battles are difficult, they're difficult for the children, and there is crying and screaming. But now that we know what was going on... How telling. How telling. Oh, my God. How telling. When I see that little one trying to punch his father in the knee with every ounce of tiny strength that he has, that tells me everything. Yeah. Yeah, how telling. Um, you know, and, and this is one of those cases, right, where people say, oh, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. Not in this case. No. There was more warnings in this case. And every step of the way, there was an opportunity to do something to prevent this. And it was a total, complete failure. It was a failure on every level from the judicial system to DCFS. And, you know, the teachers um, who who can you imagine that this was their student and they tried and tried to intervene and they were shot down each and every time? Yeah, I, it's awful. It's just so horrible. So now I want to go back to the morning of the murder because now with all of this context, I really want you to listen to this 911 tape because now you will hear him in his own words. And you know everything now that has happened up until this point. So he calls 911 because obviously he cannot revive Thomas. And an hour has passed. And this will be very important, the fact that he delayed an hour. Look, could Thomas have survived? I don't know. But he for sure sealed his fate by not calling 911 for an hour, right? There's no way that could be beneficial to the boy. Well, I mean... Look, I don't think there's much that could have been done at that point, but it just continues to show the total indifference. Um, how do you wait an hour? If, if he truly believed 
that he didn't intend to kill him or that he could care less. I don't I, I using the word intent to kill is wrong here. Mm-hmm. It's more and, and the way people should look at it is when you have extreme indifference to human life, you really don't care whether the person lives or dies. You you commit acts um, that you know or should have known could have killed this child and you don't and and you don't really doesn't matter to you. So this clip is from CBS2 in New York. This is the 911 call. My name is Michael. I'm a police officer with the city of New York. My son, I think he's, I don't know if he's breathing or not. I don't know if his heart stopped. He fell down on his way to the bus. He banged his head pretty good. I brought him in and I'm doing CPR right now. Allison, the first thing he says is, I'm a police officer. So listen to me. I have authority. And then, and then the bullcrap story that he tells them that the little boy fell running to catch the school bus? Anna, this is not long after he attempts to suffocate the child. Well, the only good thing here, and there's nothing really good, is that at least the responding and investigating officers for this segment of this horrific series of crimes, at least they knew this story didn't add up. They knew immediately, and also the surveillance cameras proved there was no running to the school bus. Nobody fell. Then you have the neighbor's surveillance camera proving what just happened in the backyard and how he fell, being hosed down with you know ice-cold water. So I find it fascinating that the jury asked to hear this yet once again, Thank goodness. Thank goodness. You know, they're short deliberations. I mean, I don't even, you know, the some of the jurors um, had shared, Allison, that they were having trouble sleeping at night. They were so yeah. deeply affected because yeah. what we're sharing with you is, is a fraction, a fraction of what happened and a fraction of the evidence. And we're not even seeing it. This was a six-week trial, Anna. I mean, teachers testified right? Yeah. Everyone, I mean, the police. Oh my God. I just, no wonder they can't sleep. The jurors can't sleep. I mean, they should be, thank you jurors for, you know, doing your job, finding this man guilty. I don't know how else it could have been. And it was second degree. And one of his attorneys, his defense attorneys were trying to get lesser charges. And, um, I mean, I, I've talked about that through the entirety of explain this case, but just so we're clear on the legal side of things. They were willing to admit that he was abusive and neglectful. Mm -hmm. What they were asking for was a manslaughter charge, uh, would have gotten him probably 15 years in prison on the manslaughter. What they tried to argue unsuccessfully to the jury was that he never intended for the death. he was abusive, but he never exercised um, indifference or a depraved heart. Um, and I would argue, and the DA successfully did, that this is the exact case of a depraved heart. This is the this is the case study for what is a depraved heart and extreme indifference. Um, so. The jury didn't believe it. The jury didn't buy it. Um, And 
I my my heart extends to them too because I'm sure they were shutcocked by this heart wrenching, gut wrenching, awful oh. testimony. Horrible. So on November fourth, Michael Valva was found guilty of second degree murder and four counts of child endangerment. And of course, we are awaiting sentencing here. His fiance, former fiance, Angela Polina, faces charges of second degree murder and child endangerment. Her trial is next. Um, just to remind everyone, we've done extensive reporting on this case, and we have two episodes that you can listen to or view. And those cases, when, that case, when we reviewed this one, it was with Dr. Judy Ho, and it was very insightful. And there's more information and more background. Obviously, we couldn't cover it all, especially... Um, since we've done so much on it in the past. But if you're interested, we do have those two other podcasts for you. Our next case is out of Fairfield, Iowa, where two teenagers allegedly killed their Spanish teacher over a bad grade. I just, honestly, we are lowering the value of a human life constantly as a society. Honestly, over a grade because it brought down your GPA. Maybe you earned that grade, huh? You know what, though, Anna, I'm going to tell you something. I, I know that it will come out because I, I've done criminal defense for 25 years. The tipping point was the grade. But I assure you that these teens, if in fact they did it, um, that the there was years of trouble that when you unpeel this onion, you will learn that there were flags left and right at some point, um, and this was the tipping point. I, 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 I'm anxious to see that. Mm, you're probably right. You're probably right. You know, very few things happen in a vacuum like that, especially when it isn't like, you know, those crimes of passion or something happens. You know, and it's and it's an incident where you know someone snaps. Yes, exactly. But we're talking about a grade here. Yeah. We're talking about a great. Oh, by so, the way, yeah. allegedly he said it was going to lower my. This grade was going to lower my GPA, mm -hmm. and she was doing that to other students too, where it would lower their GPA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. because maybe maybe the student doesn't realize that maybe the grade is kind of on them. Yeah. Or it's reflective of how they're doing in the class. Hello, look in the mirror. It's telling you the truth. So Jeremy Godall and Willard Miller, who are now 17, have been charged with first-degree murder in the death of Noema Graber, who is 66 years old. She was the Spanish teacher at Fairfield High, where they attended. According to court records, Willard Miller was frustrated because the teacher gave him a poor grade in Spanish, and that had lowered his overall GPA. So the students, these two teens, they were 16 at the time of the crime. They are now being charged as adults. Prosecutors allege that the boys stalked the teacher prior to the killing and claim that the pair even talked about plotting this murder on Snapchat. So Noema Graber had been a teacher at Fairfield High School since 2012. Willard Miller, he's the one with the bad grade. He allegedly went to discuss the grade he received in Spanish class with the teacher. Okay, that's reasonable. Go talk to the teacher. Find out what's going on. On the afternoon of, no of November 2nd of 2021, later that day around 4 p.m., Graber drove her van to a local park where she liked to go for her afternoon walk. This was her routine. 
Every same, day. Every day, same time, same. right? We all know when we've attended school, we all know it's like this teacher's over there, that teacher, you know, right? Everyone's got a routine. Yep. Witnesses told authorities that Graber's van was later seen leaving the park at around 442. That would have been about 45 minutes later after she got there for her walk. Two males were seen in the front seat of the vehicle. Okay, well, two males could be anyone. Witnesses then said that um, Graber's vehicle was parked on a rural road about 5 p.m. So that'd be what, an hour after the murder? Or no, excuse me, an hour after she was seen at the park because we don't know exactly the time of murder. Right. Witnesses claim to have seen two white males exiting the vehicle. According to authorities, witnesses claim to have received a phone call from the teens. Okay, here's the interesting. The teens allegedly called one of their friends and said, hey, can you pick me up? Come pick me up. Yeah. Come pick me up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, this is after and- they allegedly, they're the ones who ditched the teacher's van. And it's my understanding that that teen then spoke with authorities. I hope so. I hope I hope there's a young person in this doing the right thing. And I'm sure that school is, is filled with is. fabulous young people who are mourning, who are mourning the murder of their Spanish teacher and they're having to process the accusations that two of their classmates are responsible possibly for her death. This is a small town in Iowa. One of the students was interviewed and she said, this just doesn't happen um, in our town. And this was a wonderful teacher. She always had a smile on her face. Why? Why would, over a grade, why would you do this? And how is killing her going to fix your grade? Oh, you think maybe your GPA is going to affect you getting into college? Let me tell you something, young men. If you get convicted on this... (laughs) The only college you might be seeing is going to be correspondence class, maybe in prison. And look, can we get back to that when we talk about yes. what some of the defense motions? Yes, were? yes, yes. Of course. All right. So let's get back to you know the events as they were unfolding. So we've got the hey, can you come pick me up? Which um, you know puts them in a place, and you have now an additional witness that puts them in a location. So the next day, the teacher's body was found in the park. She had reportedly been beaten to death with a baseball bat before her body was hidden under a tarp, and then a a wheelbarrow and railroad ties were put on top of the tarp to hold it down. She died of trauma to the head. So Miller and Goodall allegedly planned the killing over social media. This is what authorities are saying and in court records. Uh, The prosecutors are alleging that they stalked her, learning her routines, talking about how to dispose of the body, um, and that apparently there was a witness to the Snapchat conversation and that that has been handed over to the authorities. Now, here's what's interesting and could really use your insight in this. The, The police say it's being reported that they obviously they interviewed the two teens And they claim that Willard Miller expressed frustration with his teacher because of the way she taught Spanish and that he allegedly called her an asshole to the authorities, that he admitted that he was indeed frustrated about the grade in his GPA. Initially, Willard Miller denied any knowledge of the murder to authorities. However, investigators now claim that Miller's stories changed over time. Allegedly, in one instance... You know, he revealed 
some information that showed he may have had some knowledge here. So, you know, obviously I think, I think DNA evidence and any surveillance video and all this other stuff is probably going to be the strongest. Um, what do you make of what they have reportedly said to the authorities so far? Okay. And th this is, uh, there's, there's so many interesting layers here. So we're going to, we're going to dig a little deep. So first of all, they are juveniles. They are, they were 16 years old at the time in Iowa. You can be charged as an adult um, if it is a, the act of murder. So they have been charged as adults. Um, their defense attorneys made several motions. And one was that these juveniles should be tried in juvenile court. The effects of which, by the way, one is now turned 17, is they can only hold you in Iowa until you're 18. So those were summarily dismissed. These boys are now facing first degree murder in adult court where they're looking at life in prison. Mm -hmm. um, it is in Iowa, if you're convicted of life in prison and you're a juvenile, you have to be given a chance at parole at some point in your life. But here's where the interesting legal arguments are. The police gather information from lots of sources. Sometimes it is a, um, sometimes it is a confidential informant. Sometimes it is a, another juvenile. Sometimes it's social media. And they take that information and they build a case on the information that they get, right? And at some point they want to execute a search warrant. So they took the officer in this case, took the information that he had received from both juvenile witnesses allegedly the one who um, supposedly um, was called to pick them up and then the Snapchat person allegedly. And he built his case based on those, that information. And what the defense said was without giving us, without putting into the warrant, the probable cause warrant, um, enough information to show confidence in this informant or this witness um, that the officer essentially lied to the judge signing the warrant. And so that everything eventually would be, mm. everything that they discovered would be fruit of the poisonous tree. So you would excluded. have to suppress everything that was found. And when we're talking about everything that was found, what are we talking about? We're talking about a Snapchat dialogue that names the two as being involved. We're talking about bloody clothes found in Miller's home. We're talking about evidence that would be direct evidence of a crime. Um, and judges routinely have denied their requests. The suppression motion was denied. But they have made these arguments because without that critical evidence, cases fall apart. Um, I don't think that a judge is going to toss out the critical evidence in this case. I think that a jury will be left to decide based on uh, the alleged motive in this case, which is the grades, the um, statements that he did meet, that he did make, that he met with the teacher, that he was upset about his grades, 
the witnesses saying, yes, I had a Snapchat conversation with him. Yes, I picked them up or whatever I did. And then the clothing that was found, um, that's going to be the central part of the prosecution's case. That's going to be what makes up the case. And um, it's it's uh, it's going to be hard um, for these boys to ever overcome that, in my opinion, because his explanation changed multiple times. And then he talked about the no, it was I was there. I know all about it. And I was forced into doing some of it by masked teenagers. Right. That's such a strange thing to say. Right. And, it, and it's not it's it's um, in my opinion, it's just not believable. Right. Um, it's, it's like it's a not. kid making up a crazy lie to cover up, you know, something that they did. Right. Right. So um, so that's where their case is. And the case really, um, you know, it, it, it's a tragedy because I believe that there could have there were warning signs and there should have been more intervention. I say that a lot in these cases. I say these things just don't happen. Um, there were warning signs along the way, and I wish people would have picked up on it. I um, I think that that will come out, and I think that um, that the defense um, will have to talk about whatever trouble these whatever troubled backgrounds these boys had. Yeah. Willard Miller's trial is scheduled for March 20th of 2023. Jeremy Goodall's trial was originally scheduled for December. However, it's been pushed back and there is no date on that. And let's not forget that a teacher is dead here, a mom, um, a member of the community, and um, Graber's son posted about his mother's death, calling her an angel of a woman and one of the kindest souls he ever knew. All right, so now we have an update on the Delphi murder case, which many of you have been following. We reported last week that after five years, police have finally made an arrest in the case, and many many of you asked us to monitor this case and update it. Now, the thing here, Allison, is that we don't have an awful lot of information, and that's because the court records have been sealed um, on the person who's been arrested, and, and, and that's creating you know, a huge vacuum for many people to figure out what was the connection. I'm going to do a summary and then I want to discuss with you what's happened here with the judge recusing himself from this murder case. It's it's really extraordinary what's happening. So just to bring everyone up to speed, 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German of Delphi, Indiana, were found dead on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 2017, in a wooded area about half a mile from a bridge and a hiking trail. The two went off on a walk the day before, and they never showed up at the designated pickup spot. Libby was able to make a 43-second video with her cell phone of a man that they engaged on the bridge. The images of the man were released along with a short audio clip where you can hear a man say, down the hill. So what's interesting is, after five years, Allison, thousands of tips, video, audio, images, two different sketches, police finally, five years later, arrest 50-year-old Richard Allen on October 26. Now, they charged him with two counts of murder. However, the court records have been sealed. All we know is he was married lived in Delphi, worked at the CVS. He even printed photos of the girls at the CVS for the families for the funeral. Everyone in town, whether you were a police officer, a teacher, you know, the garbage collector, because there was only one 
drugstore like this at CVS would have gone into the CVS. And if they didn't know him, they probably would remember he's the guy who works there. But that's all we know. Anna, what is, um, I mean, if he in fact did this, he was literally hiding in plain sight. These are the scariest because everybody knew him and he filled their prescriptions and he had children and he's married and he lives in the community among them. And you think, oh my gosh, it could be anybody if, you know, that we know anybody that we come in contact with. Um, we, we don't know a lot um, as someone that handles cases and covers cases, it is very rare that we truly don't know the reason for the arrest. Even if it's a one-liner, DNA connects. Suspect gave a statement that implicated him. There's usually a one-line explanation, but in this case, authorities have been so tight-lipped that we really don't know what it is. You know, all of us will remember that video was chilling, hearing that voice. Anyone that has has ever heard about this case remembers it. Um, And the fact that she videoed that quick video, um, it, it stays with you. So some amazing police work has to have been done because um, having that video with any man's voice, a a flash of a picture, um, that's certainly not enough to make an arrest. So I, like everybody else, am so curious to see and so interested to see what actually led to his arrest because we really don't know. There was a huge, huge public outcry with his arrest when the records were sealed. Many people demanding to know, look, I don't know what right the public has to know. Generally, it is a public process. There are times when records are sealed because the investigation is still ongoing. You're right. Generally, we're given a nugget of why this person is connected to this crime, but there's been no nugget. But here's what's happened, which I think is extremely important. The judge that sealed those records, the judge has pulled himself off the case. Apparently, it appears based on his statements, he can't handle the attention and the stress and the public outcry. It's its shocking to me. Carroll County Judge Benjamin Diener has recused himself, pulled himself off the case because he says that his family and his court staff are being threatened and hounded by the public. On November 3rd, the judge said he was upset about some YouTube videos, which included pictures of his family. The judge wrote, quote, the public's blood lust for information before it exists is extremely dangerous. All public servants administering this action do not feel safe and are not protected. So now the Indiana Supreme Court has appointed another judge, Judge Francis Gull of Allen County, to hear the case against Richard Allen. So, Allison, what's interesting is one of the local channels was, you know, writing back and forth using the Indiana Public Records Act, petitioning the court saying, look, we think we have a right to know some information. For example, prosecutors said, oh, there, you know, the, he, there was no bail. Well, bail was set at 20 million, but that was sealed. 
and and you know not all the information came out is that significant i don't know transparency i believe is important to having trust the public trust in our system look i want to make sure there is justice for abby and libby and i want to make sure that the trial and that the that nothing nothing interferes with the gathering of the information and the evidence. But to have a judge just say, that's it. I can't take the phone calls anymore. I, I, you know, I don't have the staff for this. I'm pulling myself out of this. This this has me worried. No, I mean, it's unusual. It is unusual to say the least. But when we're talking about interests here, right, we're talking about three competing interests. One is the public's right to know and you want to make the system a transparent public system where people understand what's going on. The other is the defendant. The defendant is entitled to a fair trial. And if too much, if there's too much publicity, which is bound to be negative, gets out about the case, and that jury is impaneled from that town that's heard months and months of negative reports that's not fair to the defendant who's entitled to a fair and impartial jury. The third factor, which very well may be the case here, is that you don't want, if it's still an ongoing investigation where you're still shoring up the details of your case as a prosecutor, you don't want the public knowing too much information. You don't want to, uh, Um, You don't want witnesses who may come out to speak to you be unwilling because there's so much media coverage. So those three competing interests are at play here for sure. I still think it's odd that we don't even have a one liner. We don't even know what it is that connected the police after five years, high publicity case, much media attention. Um, you know, these are one of the, I mean, some of the saddest cases around these two beautiful young girls. Why did they arrest the guy that worked at the pharmacy? Why? We don't know. And what's interesting is with this local station and other news organizations, you know, petitioning for more information, again, under the Indiana Public Records Act, that there is actually going to be a hearing coming up later this month to address what, if anything, can be released to the public. And as part of this discourse, they released his latest mugshot, which we're going to show you. And the other thing that happened right before the judge recused himself is that he took suspect Richard Allen out of the county jail and moved him to an undisclosed state prison for his own safety. Right. Judge made it clear. Right. He's in protective custody. So again, if I'm going to be an armchair detective here, Something has happened, right? So he has been threatened. His life has been threatened. It was not the judge. It was the sheriff that asked the judge to move him to protective custody. So there was an incident there. We don't know what it, whether it was a threat or we don't, we, we don't know. But, you know, people, when it's a high publicity case and, and the killing um, of children is involved, whether or not he did it, um, inmates don't appreciate that very much and they may threaten someone's life but this mystery is far from over this case is far from over because again there's going to come a point where we we will learn why 
he was arrested. And it may be at this upcoming hearing. It may very well be at this upcoming hearing. Look, I don't know. Again, I think we have to weigh the the right to justice for the victims and their families, the right to a fair trial for the person accused, and, you know, a sense of sharing some of the information in a public way, because we know bad things can happen under the cover of darkness. It's always important to have some level of transparency. So in this discussion, I want to read from this email. So Channel 13 was emailing the judge, again, trying to get some of this information to be made public, or at least to have a discussion in public about why it is sealed. Okay, these are reasonable requests. So the judge responds, and and this is the response, and this has been um, published by the TV station, it's it's just insight into what's going on here. The judge wrote, quote, respectfully, I need a team of people who can handle these requests for alleged public information where there is no public information. He went on to explain that this is a small court staff, that he is overwhelmed by, quote, the storm of requests that he's gotten. And then the judge writes this. This is incredible. Just, quote, just so the world knows, the Carroll Circuit Court consists of me, Benjamin A. Diener, the judge. My court reporter was hired Friday and began Monday. My bailiff answers the phone, has no experience and no knowledge about the legal process. Thankfully, there is a court administrator that has experience, but she has duties regarding everything going on in the court. And he writes, that's it, period. So I am begging, this is the judge, I am begging for some assistance to shield me, the court, from this storm so that I, the court, can keep running the court. Otherwise, I'll do what? Question mark, he writes. Read to everyone Rule 6A of the Indiana Rules of Court Rules on access to court records and explain to everyone that the Supreme Court and the statute allows for this precise relief. It is not the court who has a duty to notify the public. It is the prosecuting attorney's office. Anyway, the judge goes on and, and just says, I, I do not have the time and my staff does not have the time to deal with this and these requests. Well, what's interesting is, um, you know, when when judges recuse themselves, they don't have to give any explanation at all. They just can recuse themselves. So, but he bent over backward to give this long explanation. There are no uniform rules in how courts uh, must conduct themselves when it comes to the media. This is now going to be turned over to a female judge and she may very well see this case quite differently. And she may say, I welcome the media attention that this case gets. I think the public deserves to know. And I want this Mike Bartman to be a case study in how to effectively balance those interests that I talked about, the the media public information, the the prosecutor, the defense, um, and do it in a way that makes sense. I'm not going to let the media control my case. but I do think the public deserves to know. So, And I do believe that the, that the State Department of Justice and whether that's the attorney general and all the different divisions, I, I, I do feel for the judge, Judge Diener in this, where he's like, it's me. 
It's a court reporter and a bailiff. It's a small town. It is is a small town. town. It's 3,000 people in in the city of Delphi. So I hear him and he's like, you know what? You're going to mount a massive national trial here in my little courtroom, but you're not helping me and people are after me and my family. And I get that. And that's not fair. And that's not right. However, perhaps he could have asked for help. I mean, he's just decided, I don't want any part of this. And so hopefully, with all of this becoming public, that the state of Indiana is going to step up and give support to this court. Because whatever court hears this, they need help. They need help. And, 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 you know, and there's something that you said off the, the, the very beginning that I really hear. And I think the fact that he's pulled himself out of this case, you know, like just a few days into it, is probably a good idea. Yeah. I mean, when someone is telling you that they don't want to handle the case, you should listen. Right. 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 I mean, absolutely. So that hearing that we talked about, about whether anything will be revealed to the public and or any explanations as to why the court record is sealed, that's going to be held on November 22nd. So we'll know a lot more information. Again, transparency helps to build confidence in the system. Um, We want to make sure that if you appreciate these updates and you want us to keep doing these updates, because this is a case so many of you are interested in, let us know, give us some feedback, and we'll continue doing them. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Hi, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Great to see you, Allison. Nice to see you, Will. Okay, so this week we have a case of a chicken fortune billionaire uh, crashing into the wrong nest. Now, the suspect in this case is John R. Tyson. I'm just going to get that out of the way. He's Tyson the CFO. chickens, right? <laughs> yes, he's the CFO of Tyson Foods. He's the son of John H. Tyson, both pretty similar names there, uh, who has been the chairman of the board for you know over a decade. He's the heir to this whole fortune. Uh, so what happened was John R. Tyson here was reportedly arrested over the weekend when he allegedly fell asleep in someone else's home. Um, so this comes out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And what happened here was a woman came home at approximately 2 a.m. and she found John R. Tyson asleep in her bed. So she called the police. Uh, and kind of as a as a side note here, this wasn't exactly a B&E. The, the woman allegedly reported that she might have left her front door unlocked. So there is that. Um, so uh, when officers arrived on the scene, they found that Tyson's clothes were at the foot of the bed, really made him all comfortable there. And officers were able to identify him once they found his driver's license after sorting through these clothes at the the bottom of the bed, presumably. So when officers trying to speak to him, he reportedly fell back asleep and could not speak. Uh, So the officer said that he smelled of alcohol. um, But yeah, as I mentioned up top, like Tyson does serve as the chief financial officer of Tyson Foods and is also the son of the company's chairman. Uh, So he was arrested uh, on November 6th on charges of public intoxication and criminal trespass. And won't you, won't this be a surprise for you? He was out on bond the same day. Uh, So people were really interested in this one. Logan S said, sounds like he's been living his best life, which I agree with. This guy has probably been living his best life his whole life. Are you kidding me? We have some people a little bit worried about Tyson uh, Foods, the company here. Eric N said, hopefully he handles Tyson's finances 
better than his alcohol. I have to see this because I just saw it on Forbes. Tyson's stock is down about 3%. I, I doubt that it's related directly to this incident, but it can have helped things uh, just from a public perspective. Linda T said, maybe the price of Tyson chicken will go down. Not sure how it'll affect ch chicken prices worldwide. Tyson already is pretty cheap. Tug said, I'd let the nugget man sleep at my residence, which we did have a lot of people in the comments who were kind of like, oh, I actually, uh, it'd be kind of nice for me to come home and find a billionaire asleep in my house. It'd be pretty decent settlement there, I'm sure. Mary R said, he went into the hen house, which just just great we didn't we didn't get enough puns on this one but everybody was really excited about it uh this is yeah i i, I don't know we hear about these stories every now and again of like oh, high profile allison and figures. i are we're sitting allison and i are sitting here dying to say hmm this reminds me of because you're too young when robert downey jr the actor <laughs> went into some home in malibu yeah. and slept in a kid's bed <laughs> Yeah. In a kid's bed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so some you people... remember this, Allison? Yeah, Some people course. did reference this in the comments. I actually wasn't familiar. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I sure did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By the a... way, just, just so you all know, I covered a case a couple weeks ago on a guy who was the a former executive, I believe at Tyson. He now works for Beyond Meat. And he got arrested. And The his, guy who it, bit the nose? Yes. The Beyond Meat guy? Yes, yes. You're covering that? Of course. Oh my god. And, and and so I'm just what what's going on in the chicken bit? Like what's up in the, in the food business? In the food business. Oh, yeah, cuz the Beyond Meat guy, right? The meatless company. Been at Tyson forever though. He had worked at Tyson. Oh, he worked at Tyson? Yeah, he was an executive yeah. there Oh, before. I didn't know that. Yeah, he oh, I, yeah. was some tailgating something or another and he gets into he an altercation and he bit a guy's nose. Like, what's going on here with food know. executives? Tough, yeah, tough time for food executives. Tough time for billionaires. Our, our heart really goes yes. out to them. Yes, it is a tough time to be a billionaire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Will. Absolutely. Thanks, I'll see you all next week. Thanks. Bye. What does that say, Allison, when we remember covering, you know, Robert Downey Jr. when he was it's going through minute. his ep It's been a minute. We've been here in L.A. a long time covering news and crime. <laughs> you know, I was practicing then and he his cases were in Malibu. There used to be this most wonderful court in Malibu. Remember yes, that? I love that court. And right. The best. And he would be in front of Judge Myra literally you know, often, often. So you would be in court and there he would come in front of the judge over and over. And that judge was like the most wonderful, most understanding judge. And even he had basically at some point had it. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, for those of you who may not remember, Robert Downey Jr., the actor, went through a very difficult time in his life battling his addiction demons and he worked really hard at it and he's pulled his life together and i would say honestly in the last 15 20 years he's just been living a great exemplary life he, he is the ultimate success story yeah. um i mean i you know we were poking fun but i mean listen um to um to not just has he had an amazing career since then um, but he but he kicked his addiction and um, now he's, you know, an advocate for sobriety and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's hope Tyson Food Man <laughs> get some inspiration. Going to get you better. You have an opportunity yeah. to change things around here. Yeah. 
Well, Allison, thank you so much. We've had an incredible episode today. Where can people find you if they want to know what cases you're representing or what you're talking no, about? No, so um, Anna's joking with me because I handle some cases that I know that we would all want to cover, but I obviously won't comment on my own cases. Exactly. I'm a criminal defense attorney and in Los Angeles. And I'm the legal expert at KTLA, which is a local um, channel in Los Angeles. I am the legal expert at Access Hollywood. with, And I have a segment with Mario Lopez called Trending with Treasel. And so I am out and about covering all great stories as you are. And Anna, we have, we have covered some really amazing cases. And I'm so, I feel so blessed that you asked me to be on your show. I really do. Oh. I think. It's always a pleasure. We love having you on, um, you know, people who listen and watch really, you know, feel very comfortable when you're on. And I think it's important. We're always looking for a balance in this discussion about crime. And everyone brings a different level of expertise and always trying to find our compassion for humanity in here. Although I got to tell you, some of these cases really challenge, really challenge us. Um, yeah. You, right? Yeah. I mean, look, um, for anybody who is a parent, is, is a human being, when you hear um, of parents abusing children like that, it's un the unthinkable, but I think it's so important that we cover them. And even if it affects or it changes the life of one person, we've done our job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. It's important. Uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at Anna G News. You can find this episode and all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to True Crime Daily, the podcast. Um, True Crime Daily has a YouTube channel. We've got almost 5 million subscribers. So we thank you for that. Sign up for a newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And until next week, as we always say, don't do crime. 